And there are no shortcuts to success in our profession. It requires a tremendous sacrifice, especially personal sacrifice, sacrifice uh, personal relationships, uh, in some instances, family relationships. It is a very demanding profession. It is not for the weak of heart. So unless you can give it 150%, you probably ought to be doing something else because you're gonna end up putting those clients before yourself. And that means you're gonna put them before some of your family obligations at times. The profession requires it. The client's cases require it. Nothing less than your very, very, very best. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with me is my co-host, Lester Tate. Good morning, How you doing, Lester? Good morning. How, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I think the last time uh, I saw you, we were in beautiful uh, Maui, Hawaii. And, oh, my uh, gosh. One of, our, one of our benefactors with us today, That's too. That's right. Gosh, yeah. I'm still on the Maui high. <laughs> I'm still on the Maui time zone. <laughs> I, I don't want to get up till about six hours after I typically get up, you know, that time zone change was a doozy. I'm not going to lie. That, that was, that was rough, but it was worth it. It was so Absolutely. worth it. Absolutely. Um, and still a, a proud of the, the Tar Heels, but still a little, little tiny upset, a little bit upset that we fell about three points short, but it was a great season for the Tar Heels. This would be the time that I would need to point out that my Carolina, the real Carolina, South Carolina, where I went to law school, actually came through and won the women's uh, national title uh, running away. And I'm I'm so proud of Dawn Staley and uh, those young women uh, for doing that. Uh, And uh, it's interesting to me, you know, I graduated from Georgia Tech and then I graduated from South Carolina Law School and absolutely the most accomplished uh, teams at both of those schools are the women's basketball teams. Yeah, congratulations to them. They had a great year and so proud of them. Well, we mentioned uh, our guest uh, indirectly when we mentioned Maui because uh, our guest, Ray Persons, was was the driving forces, force to get us out there, which was just an incredible trip. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But let me uh, introduce our listeners to our guest, Attorney Ray Persons, uh, incredible lawyer, uh, amazing friend, and we're so thankful to have him with us today. Ray is a trial lawyer here in Atlanta with the firm King and Spalding, and he's currently president of the International Society of Barristers. He is a senior litigation partner at King and Spalding, an international law firm that represents a broad array of clients, including half of the Fortune Global 100 with 900 lawyers in 23 offices in the United States, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Ray has a national practice focused on product liability, mass tort, class action, and complex litigation. 
Ray has represented more than 50 of the Fortune 500 as counsel or national coordinating counsel for clients in the pharmaceutical, automotive, chemical, and energy industries. He has served as lead counsel in 92 jury trials. That number may have changed by now, but we'll talk about that. 90% of which went to verdict. He has served as lead counsel in over 25 Engel progeny tobacco jury trials. He serves as national counsel in NRA UST litigation for one of the world's largest petroleum, petroleum companies in claims brought by dozens of states alleging fraudulent overpayment of claims for reimbursement of costs associated with cleanup of underground storage tanks. He served as national coordinating counsel and lead trial counsel for Union Carbide Corporation in the successful defense against claims of an alleged industry-wide conspiracy to subject workers to cancer-causing chemicals. He represented one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies in a 442 plaintiff case involving claims of exposure to arsenic and chromium stemming from the 60-year operation of a manufacturing facility in New Jersey. Ray successfully defended against claims brought by 1,200 homeowners and residents who lived in the vicinity of a fertilizer plant. The chemicals of concern were arsenic, lead, mercury, and sulfur dioxide. Ray is regarded as one of the best trial lawyers in the country, as evidenced by his election as a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers, the International Society of Barristers, and Litigation Council of America. And as I told you before, he's currently president of International Society of Barristers. He is a member of the De Defense Research Institute, Federation of Defense, and Corporate Council, International Association of Defense Council, and American Health Lawyers Association. Ray received his undergraduate degree in 1975 from Armstrong State College and his law degree in 1978 from the Ohio State University. I guess I should say the Ohio State University. He was awarded the Armstrong State University Distinguished Alumnus Award in 2000, the Moritz College of Law 2005 Distinguished Alumnus Award, the Ohio State University 2006 Distinguished Service Award, and the Ohio State University 2012 John B. Gerlach Senior Development Volunteer Award. Wow. Uh, incredible, incredible. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robin, and thank you, uh, Lester, as well. Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in real quick and, and say I, didn't, I don't think you included one of the most important parts of Ray's uh, biography because uh, uh, Ray started uh, uh, his career, I think, right after law school, Ray, uh, working for uh, Lindsey Thomas, a Georgia congressman. When I worked for Congressman George Buddy Darden and uh, Ray and I have known each other, I know, since at least 1983, <clears throat> which was before I was a lawyer. Uh, and uh, it, it's just so nice to have a friend of such uh, long standing and such great accomplishment and to have him here uh, talking today. Well, the feeling is certainly mutual. Absolutely. And I had been practicing law for a few years when I went to Washington with Thomas. In fact, I was practicing in my hometown, which is Hinesville, Georgia, in Liberty County on the coast, and um, was counsel for the regional counsel for the NAACP. And in that capacity, I met Lindsay at a small church in McIntosh County. And um, he uh, apparently was impressed enough with me that um, 
when he got elected to Congress, he invited me to be on his staff. So, and that was a very enriching experience and has helped yeah, tremendously in my development as a lawyer, because uh, in a congressional office, you deal with all kinds of problems and all people from all walks of life, everything from handling a social security uh, claim that someone has um, to writing legislation uh, and getting funding for the Talmadge Bridge. And so um, all of that has contributed to um, the success I've enjoyed in the practice of law. I think, I think also, Ray, you know, you talked about where you first met Lindsay. You know, you get to go to a lot of barbecues and uh, 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 parades and all this other stuff, and you really get to meet the folks that are frequently sitting on on juries. And that's just one thing I really admire about you. You're with a big firm. Uh, you know, uh, Robin has told us about the global span of King and Spalding, uh, but you, you know, you, you, they're lucky to have you because, uh, despite their corporate uh, corporate uh, silk stocking credentials. They've got a guy who uh, doesn't 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 eat chicken with a knife and fork, you know. That's right. You got that right, and I'm not alone uh, in that. The firm has had a history over the years of reaching out and um, recruiting lawyers outside the firm, some from very small firms, but who have a trial resume. And, and an example of that would be Griffin Bell. And when he recruited me to King and Spalding, he pointed out to me the fact that. He was with a small firm in Rome, Georgia. Uh, King and Spalding at that time had about um, 12 lawyers, and he thought they were too big that they really couldn't afford to pay all those people. So he <laughs> insisted on seeing the books because he didn't think that they were really making the kind of money that they claimed they were. That's a true story. And he said to me, and I'll never forget it as long as I live, he said, Ray, if you join us, I'm going to tell you the same thing that Mr. Hughes Spalding told me. Hugh Spalding being the son of Jack Spalding, who was one of the founders. He said, we'll give you plenty of backup. And that was true. And, but he wasn't the only one. We had others like Frank Jones, who came from Macon, from Jones, Cork, and Miller. Uh, we had um, uh, Mr. Gower from um, Brunswick. We had Charlie Kerbo came from Bainbridge in a two-person law firm with his brother, Bruce, but he was one fantastic trial lawyer. So we've had a history of doing that, uh, reaching out and getting um, top-notch trial lawyers who can relate to people and relate to folks from all walks of life and who really just enjoy lawyers and trial lawyers. Yeah. You know, Ray, your experience starting out as the congressional aide, did, did that ever make you want to consider running for office? You know, that's part of what led me back home to, um, to Hinesville. I had worked in Atlanta. In fact, I, I started my career at a large firm, Troutman, Sanders, Lockman, and Ashmore, now Troutman, Pepper. And uh, I wanted to get in the courtroom, but I also wanted to do something in the way of community service and give something back to people in coastal Georgia, where I'd been raised. And so, I had the idea of running for the state legislature after building up some, you know, um, cred um, in my community. But the, the, the folks in town, I was gonna say the city fathers, but the city mothers as well, they thought this would be a great opportunity for me to do something on a broader scale to help coastal Georgia. Uh, for those who do not know, uh, Hinesville is the home of Fort Stewart. And most of the land in that county is occupied as federal land. 
And so it's not taxable. So we depend heavily on the presence of the military installation as well as um, funding uh, from the federal government to replace um, the, the loss of funding due to the land not being taxable. And so that was seen as something I could do to help out. And um, it, was, and it was deeply rewarding. Well, I mean, it certainly, certainly sounds like it and, and definitely set you on a path, obviously, uh, that is just your trajectory has been straight up. Um, it, it really has, Robin. It, 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 that it's set a, me on my way. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful, uh, wonderful story. I said in the intro that you had tried 92 jury trials. Is that accurate or is it more now? I think that's probably true at last count. We haven't done a count in a couple of years. <laughs> I, I might have one or two more, but it's not even worth uh, uh, updating the bio to do that. And so, uh, but yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's a lot of trials. And, um, you know, I, I've been very fortunate. That uh, that have been called upon to to take yeah. cases to to the jury. First, I'm wondering if if in the vast uh, firm that is King and Spalding, um, do you think you're the person who's tried the most trials of anybody there? That's true. Yes. I, no yeah, question yeah. about that, right? There's no question about that. That's right. That's beyond debate. And yeah, and Lester has tried over a hundred. I've tried seventy five, um, which I think is a lot. Lester's over a hundred. That's You're at lot. 92 or so. Yeah. Um, but what we're seeing, Ray, is that younger lawyers now don't don't have an opportunity to try cases much. You're right. Um, are you seeing less and less opportunities for that? Absolutely less. And that's one of the reasons why I'm a big proponent of um, our tobacco practice. Those cases get tried. I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to do that, but um, I got involved in tobacco work back in 2011, and I've tried at least 25, probably more like 30 of those cases now. And, um, and I've trained other people to do it. Uh, Bethany Snyder, who's a prominent plaintiff's lawyer now, um, I trained her on tobacco. Um, uh, Frank Bayek, who's still doing defense work, he's at another defense firm. He's at Jones Day now, but I trained him. And then there are lawyers who are, in, who are still at King and Spalding. Um, who have grown up on uh, tobacco work, because that's the only industry that's still trying a lot of cases. Um, and, 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 and it's, we just, there's just such a dearth of trials anymore. So they're not getting the experience that you and Lester and I were able to get over the years. And I wouldn't have had nearly as many trials had I been at King and Spalding years ago. I started trying a lot of cases when uh, I, after I came back to Atlanta from Washington uh, and was representing MARTA, representing waste management, representing all state, state farm, trying just car crash cases. But I tell my young lawyers, no matter how small the case is, you have to do jury selection, you got to do an opening statement, you got to have, you got to do cross-examination, direct, and you're going to do a closing argument. So you learn, even with the smallest. So seek every opportunity to get into court that you can. And I've taken on a lot of these prisoner rights cases uh, on a pro bono basis to get my younger lawyers courtroom experience. And so we've got a number of those going right now these 1983 cases 
and they're taking them and they're running with them, but that's giving them a chance to get into trial if they aren't doing tobacco. If they're doing tobacco, then they can, not that they can't do both, some do both, but it's especially important for those who aren't involved in the tobacco wars. So I, I think, Ray, you and I tried a, a road wreck case against one another. Actually, you had a younger person you were training, you know, then. I did. Uh, Hugh Lawson over in Athens. Years had, ago. It was a federal case now. It was. We, it was absolutely. <laughs> and we lost. You, you beat us uh, <laughs> beat us down fair yeah. and square, but it was a fair fight. It was a fair fight. It was a fair fight. Because Ray, Ray didn't – Ray just watched the other side be tried. I, I tried my own side, but Ray – Ray didn't, Ray didn't wade into it uh, very much. But, uh, you know, I was thinking as we we're talking about, you know, like Robin talks about, I, I, I had to count up for like a boda, and I think I had about 75 felony criminal and civil cases. And what puts me on up ahead of that in terms of jury trials is I've tried a bunch of misdemeanors, you know, over the years too, you know, uh, not, not just murders and federal criminal cases, but some... Uh, you know, a few DUIs and a shoplifting, you know, now and then. And so I think for our listeners, one of the things important is, and, and I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the mind of the listener, like you put yourself in the mind of the juror. And I think a lot of uh, uh, lay people think if you're a trial lawyer, you're out trying a case every, you know, like every week, every Monday morning, you know, you're going to the courthouse. And, uh, you know, that doesn't happen, particularly as you get further and further in your career. And you see that in, you know, even in foreign countries that like Great Britain, you know, if you become a Queen's counsel, you're not in court, you know, every day, which is one of their higher levels of the bar. And uh, so, but the cases that you're trying, uh, a lot of those are week, two week, three week long. And I know some of them too, like the tobacco cases, that's, I'm guessing probably like an asbestos case where it's sort of the same trial over and over to some extent. But uh, uh, t talk about the wide range of cases, you know, that, that, that you've tried and what the difference is in the way you approach them and, uh, uh, you know, how, how you try them. Well, everything from um, a car crash case um, and the, the approach is very similar, except when I was trying those cases, oh God, uh, over 40 years ago now. Um, I, it would just, I'd go to trial by myself or I, at most I'd have a paralegal if they'd pay for it. Uh, and everything that I needed, I could fit in one banker's box. And back in those days, we had the 30 by 40 boards and you were doing something if you had one professionally prepared by trial graphics or somebody like that. <laughs> now you fast forward and you go into trial and you've got a whole team of people um at least a dozen when you count the tech people who are doing the in-court presentation the consultants the associates the paralegals the secretaries uh the senior associates and the junior partners um but the approach is still the same you got to prepare and that gets harder and harder the older you get because it's a physically demanding endeavor as anybody who's tried cases know you can't be lazy and try cases it's just not possible unless you're just gonna go in unprepared. And so you're diligent in your preparation. Uh, one of the things I learned from the late Bobby Lee Cook, when I'd asked him about the secret to his success, and this was over 35 years ago, he said, well, in any case I try, if there's a depos depositions, I read every deposition uh, and don't overlook any witnesses being somehow unimportant. So I read everything that I can get my hands on 
And my objective is to go in and know more about the case than anybody in the courtroom. Well, whether it's the youngest person on the file to the, to the oldest. Um, and only then am I comfortable um, enough uh, that I feel that, okay, I, 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 can, I can go, uh, I'm ready to go. Um, but you can never be too prepared to try a lawsuit. There simply is no such thing. So it's all in preparation and hard work. Um, I'm not, you know, somehow brighter than everybody else, but I just outwork uh, a, a, a lot of people and have done that over the years. And I found that the harder I work, the luckier I got. And so it all comes back to uh, the lessons I learned in a small town growing up the importance of hard work and diligence and studying, um, and, and, and it, it's paid off. In, prep, in preparation and in money, there's only two states, none and not enough. That's right. Uh, I like that. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to use that. We call that good old-fashioned elbow grease, right? That's right. That's what they call it. That's good right. old-fashioned. I, I was, I was uh, talking to Steve Lowry on his podcast one time, and talking about uh, getting ready for a cross-examination of an expert witness, an anesthesiologist who had written hundreds of journal articles. And I'd read every one of them. And, and Steve said, how do you do that? I'm like, it's called good old fashioned elbow grease. Right. You just, you just do the work. That's right. You just do the work. You have to do it. And it's when nobody's looking, that's when so much of the work gets done late at night and drinking cold coffee and eating cold pizza or whatever you have is handy. Uh, you're putting in that time uh, on Sunday afternoons after church when other people are going about doing things with their families. Well, you're in the law library. And that's been true at King and Spalding. And it was true when I was in a small practice. Um, there's just no substitute for putting forth that kind of effort. Let's talk a bit, a uh, little bit about some of the cases that you're handling now or, or kind of your, your um, book of business now. We've talked about the Engel tobacco cases. And just if you could, for our listeners, in case there's some folks out there, some lay folks that may not be familiar with Engel tobacco cases, can you give us a little bit brief about what that is about? Absolutely. Engel um, was a class action that was brought back in the 90s. And it consisted of a class uh, comprised of all Florida smokers who suffered from a smoking related illness or died from a smoking related illness. <clears throat> um, and, uh, and the case alleged uh, product defect that the uh, uh, cigarettes were defective and that led to the injury and death. The case uh, was tried over the course of several months resulting in a $145 billion verdict. Uh, on appeal, um, that got reversed but the Florida Supreme Court kept the findings. And so the findings were, I mean, they're just a multitude of things that the um, tobacco, tobacco defendants uh, were negligent, um, that the product was defective and unreasonably dangerous, um, that they conspired to conceal the health effects, the adverse health effects of uh, consuming the product. And, um, those who could establish class membership on an individual basis um, by demonstrating that they were addicted and that the addiction caused the injury or the death, those findings became race judicata. They were established. We can't challenge the findings. Once they establish 
um, the requirements for class membership, addiction and addiction causation, then um, they're class members. And so uh, what we do on the defense side of the case, we can't dispute those things. What we can dispute is whether the person was in fact addicted to the point that they couldn't quit. The converse of an addiction that's so overwhelming that you continue that practice or, or, or that habit until you develop an illness is that you're able to quit. So that should break off the, break the chain of causation. The other thing is uh, they've got comorbidities, um, other conditions that contributed to the illness or, or the death. We use that uh, information, that evidence in defense of the cases. And uh, in, in so many instances, it comes down to someone's just, they enjoy smoking, they knew it was harmful, uh, they were warned by the doctors to quit and just took no steps to quit smoking. And therefore it wasn't the addiction, it was their own choice. And so choice becomes a defense. And so that's how the cases are defended. Uh, the, my client is RJ Reynolds, which is not just the original RJ Reynolds, but it's also American Tobacco Company, which they bought, which is the maker of Lucky Strike, uh, Brown and Williamson, the maker of Cool Cigarettes, um, and um, they purchased Lorillard. So all of that legacy litigation is uh, what comprises the RJ Reynolds docket now. So that's the long and the short of it. Uh, the verdicts in those cases have ranged from, oh gosh, defense verdicts to over $100 million in a single plaintiff case. So it's a very, very dangerous uh, kind of litigation. The cases that I'm called upon uh, to represent Reynolds in are in the most dangerous venues in Florida, that being Alachua County, which is the home of Gainesville, the University of Florida, um, Broward County, Fort Lauderdale, and Miami-Dade. And so that's uh, where I get sent in. And so I've lost some, some big numbers. I've won some, but I've lost some, some big verdicts because the punitive damages are just, you, as you can imagine, um, with a product which uh, you know is so controversial as tobacco um, and, and given the conspiracy claims and so forth and the misinformation campaigns, it's, uh, it's, it, it makes for a dangerous mix. That's, that's one of the things, you know, all three of us sitting here, I think, uh, have done de civil defense work and then plaintiff's work. I think Robin, Robin left the defense world completely to go to plaintiff's work. Mm -hmm. uh, I, for a long period of my career, represented the power company and was a plaintiff, you know, kind of like Hugh McNatt, you know, right. but did the other. Uh, but for folks like you who get to the pinnacle of defense work, and I had a mentor of mine, uh, uh, who was a top-notch defense lawyer, he once said, you're never going to be regarded uh, as, a, as a great defense lawyer till you really get your ass kicked, you know, a time or two That's and true. get big, big verdicts against That's you. true. And, and I think one of the things, you know, you're sort of a professional uh, stone catcher here, you know, to, to, to go out and try to fend uh, these things off. And I mean, like what you've just described, but the way the court's ruling were really put it on the tobacco companies, you know, like tied your hands a lot as to the defense. But uh, even in cases where that's not there, don't you find that in a lot of these cases, you know, the corporate America knows 
they're going to suffer a verdict and you're, you, you know, a win for you yeah. is just to sort of keep it down. I, mean, I remember one time I got a $50,000 verdict against me early in my career and uh, I was really happy about it, that it was only $50,000, right. uh, but that doesn't, that's not a drop in the bucket compared to what you're, you know, what you're doing. It was a whole lot of money back when I was defending all state. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they would send you to court uh, to defend against a $15,000 claim. I don't know if they do that now, but, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a matter of just keeping the number down. If we can't agree on it, I try to settle every case. Number one, if the case ought to be settled, I mean, and, 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 and so many of them, they should be. And, but if we can't settle it, then we, we take it down to the courthouse and let, you know, let the jury decide. And that's how it should be in this country. Um, I, do the best I can for my client, whether I'm on the plaintiff's side or on the defense side. Most of the work now is defense, but then I do represent plaintiffs, especially in some of the commercial cases. Um, and so, you know, you just, you, you do your very best uh, if you're on the defense side to, to hold that number, hold that number down. Uh, I remember when our current chairman of our firm, Robert Hayes and I were in trial over in Alabama against Jerry Beasley representing General Motors in a uh, automotive crashworthiness case. And uh, we got hit for $105 million. And it, you know, the National Law Journal used to have those top verdicts. Well, that thing stayed in the top 10 for a whole, you know, for a whole, for the rest of that year. I think we tried the case in March. And so every time we'd last law journal come out, we'd see if that thing was still in the top 10. Well, come December, it was still in the top 10. Somebody, I can't remember who it was, a friend of mine called up and he said, Ray, I see where you got hit for $105 million. You really tried big cases now. <laughs> and so I remember telling Robert about it and I said, you know, that's a compliment. We could make this thing work for yeah. it. It, it is a compliment. Right. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, for somebody to trust you with that kind of money, I said, okay, or exposure then yeah, you're trying big cases now. Unfortunately, it's on the other side. And like my late friend, Tommy Malone, who was one of my closest friends in the world, he would often say to me, he says, you know, the problem you have is the more senior you get and the more experience you get, the harder your cases get. And with me, the easier they get because I get to pick and choose. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily get to pick and choose. Man, if I did, I would pick something that were a little more winnable. <laughs> Good, good point. I, I take it the three counties you appear most in down in Florida in the Ingalls cases are are the three largest plaintiff friendly counties in they Florida. Are. Is that fair to say? That's fair, Robin. Absolutely, they are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got that. Um, some other kinds of cases that you that you're working on and and actively trying cases in, I guess, are the other medical, pro you mentioned some medical products cases, right. like the mesh yeah. uh, cases. Can you talk a little bit about that, that work that you're doing? Certainly can, yes. Um, you know, the polypropylene um, is the material that is used in the um, construction, if you will, manufacture of the mesh that's used to um, address um, female urogynecological issues, the pelvic issues, whether it's stress incontinence or uh, um, prolapse, where the organs basically um, descend 
and, uh, and extrude uh, outside of the body, whether it's the bladder, sometimes it's the, um, uh, the colon. I mean, and so those are very problematic, very difficult medical issues that a sizable um, segment of the population uh, faces. Uh, and so one of the problems with, uh, with, with this, these devices is at, at times uh, there's what's called an erosion where it uh, ventures into an adjacent organ or there's an exposure where the wound simply doesn't heal and the mesh is exposed and that creates problems uh, for the patient and the patient's uh, sexual partner. And so those are the kinds of cases that uh, they've been around a while now, um, but I'm, I'm involved in um, defending those down here in, in Florida. And then also, you, I know you, you did mention a, a um, products liability for a manufacturer of a car case yep. against the Beasley firm, but mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that? I know you've handled many, many products liability to defense for car manufacturers in what we call crashworthiness cases. That's right. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that kind of work? What is a crashworthiness case and 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 who who do you represent in those kind of cases? The manufacturer is who I represent in crashworthiness litigation. And um, basically what crashworthiness is, is that um, it's the ability of a, a vehicle to withstand a collision or a crash with minimal bodily, bodily injury to its occupants. So the ability of the vehicle to protect the occupant of the vehicle. Now, no um, vehicle can be constructed that would protect the occupant entirely. I mean, even tanks, if you collide two tanks, the shock would uh, result in injury to the occupant. But uh, the uh, National Highway Transportation Safety Administration requires uh, that manufacturers meet certain standards of crashworthiness and that the occupants are protected. You've seen these crash tests and read about them in uh, consumer reports. Uh, and that's what that all is intended to do is to, for the manufacturer to demonstrate that the vehicle is capable at certain um, speeds um, uh, to protect the, the occupant. The case that we had against Jerry involved a head-on collision between two cars. Um, that was a, a Pontiac Trans Am was, the, uh, was one of the vehicles, but the vehicle that was the subject of the, the, the lawsuit was an Oldsmobile 88 driven by a 16-year-old boy and his front seat passenger was his nine-year-old brother who uh, in the crash suffered a penetrating head wound and it resulted in his having to undergo a lobotomy. Uh, he went from being in the 98th percentile in terms of uh, intelligence to the fifth percentile. So it was a horrific injury. Um, and it, it was uh, the plaintiff, the father of this child was the clerk of the court who sent out all the jury summons and signed them and uh, very prominent in that county. And so everybody knew this family and knew what this family had suffered as a result of this child's horrific injury. And so it's just very, very difficult case um, for a jury not to be swayed by, uh, by sympathy. We tried to settle the case, we couldn't. We tried the case, the uh, 
it went up to the Alabama Supreme Court and they reversed it and on four three decision, uh, three wanted to render. And so we went back and teed it up to try it again and it settled for what we'd offered the, the oh, beginning. Wow. And so that was, yeah, that was a, a very tough case though, because um, you know, in order to do this work, you gotta have empathy. I mean, you just can't be a very, in my opinion, a very effective trial lawyer without genuinely caring about people. It shows if you don't. Um, and, 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 and it was hard to uh, address this case because, because you're so mindful of the needs of that child for a lifetime of care, the impact on the family. Um, if you've got any compassion at all, you're going to be you're going to be affected by it. Uh, you get out and you you get up and you do your job, but you're never unmindful of the human element of the cases that you handle. You can't be indifferent to it. Um, and so um, I was glad we were able to settle the case. It uh, will fund his care for a lifetime and provide uh, additional resources uh, to compensate. There's never adequate compensation for something like that um, because of the, just the, the just the loss, the, the toll um, that's taken. But to the extent we can do it with money, um, that's that's what we do in, in our mm -hmm. system. When you when you uh, I had a professor in law school that once said, if you if a case goes to trial, it's probably because one of the lawyers has misevaluated it. That's probably true. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I wanted to know what you thought about that. I agree with that. I've been on I, I've misevaluated them and the other side has misevaluated some. We, we learned that when the jury comes back. But yeah, that, that I think that is that's spot on, Lester. I, I, I do. And, and uh, Tommy Carlock. Is, is one of my heroes and mentors. And one of the things I love about Carlock is he's so disciplined in his case evaluation, extremely disciplined about it and, um, and has a great sense of proportion. Um, and so, no, I, 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 I totally agree. Uh, Tommy and I had one where we both misevaluated it. We, it was a med mal case. And uh, we went to trial and the jury hung. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we were both wrong, you know, uh, about the outcome. But I frequently tell clients my I don't my crystal balls in the shop this week. I can't see uh, what what 12 people unknown to me now are going to do with this in the future. You know, I'm with you, buddy. I, I mean, as, as many times as I've done this and as many places or, or over the years, I can't predict what uh, the outcome is going to be. I do the best I can to prognosticate, but I certainly can't, not with any mathematical certainty, um, tell somebody the outcome. I can give probabilities, and that's about it. Now, when I'm when I'm telling a client about possible results, if we try the case, I never include uh, could be mistried and and we have to try it again. <laughs> I, I I never think to include that, although I've had one mistrial. And it's the it's a nightmare for the I'll just tell you it's a nightmare for the plaintiffs to have to try to, you know, I, my I, friend I, Adam Malone says trying a case twice, it's like going out and working out and getting all good and sweaty, take your clothes off, take a shower, and then after you get out of the shower, you have to put your sweaty clothes back on. You know, I have I, I have I have uh, hung jury on four four cases. Uh, and three of them, of all the places I've tried, three of them have been in Floyd County, Georgia. 
And those three were a medical malpractice case, a murder trial, and a misdemeanor stalking case. <laughs> and, and I don't know what it was in the water, in the Coosa River up there that, that uh, those made those jurors, you know, hang up on those kinds of cases, but, you know, to all totally different, uh, you it, know, sorts of things. Well, you know, it's like Hugh McNatt was telling, I, I tried a case up in um, Gainesville in front of Judge Story, and it was a automotive product liability case, and the jury was hung. We agreed to take a less than unanimous verdict, and we lost. I'd miss, again, I'd misjudge <laughs> the way the vote was split. Uh, Blasting Game Birch was on the other side, so it was delightful to try a case against them. I mean, we, we got along well. Judge Story is delightful. But, you know, I, I think some of that is North Georgia, Lester. People have such strong opinions about things. I remember Hugh McNatt telling me a story of a case he tried up for the power company up in North Georgia. And um, the judge inquired about, you know, how things were going with deliberations. And, you know, you all still haven't been able to agree on a verdict. And they said, no. He said, well, there's anything that I can do to be of, the court can do to be of help. They said, you can send back some wrestling mats. <laughs> so I mean he ended up declaring a mistrial but there would have been a mistrial in that case in front of Judge Story if we hadn't agreed to less than unanimity because yeah. those folks just they were going to hang tough with whatever position they had taken and that was just going to be it there wasn't going to be any change you're not going to change my mind about it I've made up my mind about what the outcome <laughs> ought to be based on the evidence and that's it now contrast that with where I'm from coastal Georgia especially if you're in Chatham County in Savannah, if it gets to be five o'clock and it's, especially if it's on Friday, there will be a verdict because <laughs> bars are going to be open and people, I mean, it, that's just a whole different mindset in terms of how things uh, uh, are going to be done. I, I, yeah. I've heard Bobby Lee uh, talk about that before, you know, about North Georgia and, you know, we, we are, you know, uh, uh, Scotch Irish, dirt farmers, you know, weren't, weren't any, weren't, weren't any, uh, plantations of, you know, mansions, you know, like right. down in, uh, you know, uh, Savannah area and stuff like that. So I, I think it is an area where, uh, individualism, you know, is probably, I think that's uh, true. probably, uh, quite, uh, prized. Uh, I, I tried a case one time for two sisters where, uh, we're on a car rack and we tried it together. And uh, one of them sort of complained a lot because she had a lot of medical bills. The other one didn't have as many medical bills. When she got on the witness stand, uh, she, she said one of the things that it had messed up, she was about, she's about 75 years old. She said, it's messed up my deer hunting. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the, the, the defense lawyer said, you can't deer hunt anymore. She said, no, I still hunt deer, but this is the first year I've not been able to drag what I killed out of the woods. <laughs> And uh, they gave her more money than they did the sister who by medical bill, uh, medical bill uh, amount was hurt worse, you know, because she was trying and she was struggling. That's right. and they could, that's right. They could see that, you know, uh-huh. they wanted to compensate. They wanted to reward that. That's yeah. right. Not somebody just, just sitting back, just uh, complaining about the ailments. Right. Mm -hmm. Ray, do you have any idea how many states you've tried cases in? Sounds like you have to do a lot of traveling. I do. Uh, I have over the years. I, I don't have a, a, a count. Um, but right now, most of my work is in Florida. That's going to change in the fall. I've got 
a trial in Madison County, Illinois, and then another one out in California. But uh, but yeah, most of it for the last few years has been concentrated in Georgia and Florida, some South Carolina. Um, but that's that's been easier than um, this national work, national council work that I was doing a lot of before, where you had to go all over the country from coast to coast. The vinyl chloride stuff for Union Carbide took me all over the all over the nation from California to New Jersey. Are those Union Carbide cases, are they all wrapped up? Yes. Yeah, they've been. Yeah, the last one was a West Virginia case and it got wrapped up before the pandemic. I want to say like 2020, early 2020. You mentioned to us that you have a trial coming up, I think, in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Next week, of, as a matter of fact, yeah, we're going to strike the jury a week from today. What kind of case is that? Uh, that is a no a week from yesterday. It's a, a medical device case. It involves a um, a retropubic sling and vaginal mesh. And where are you trying that? Uh, in Orlando, which is Orange County, Florida, and um, can be a, a pretty dangerous venue for uh, for defense, especially in a case involving a medical device, which is, you know, that's a foreign object. Um, there's a foreign body response, which sounds pernicious, but I mean, that's just natural. Anytime you have a, something foreign put in the human body. Um, and then, like I said, these conditions are just so um, uh, life altering and, um, and, and, and just devastating for the for the person who's suffering these ailments and to the extent this these devices can rectify and then if they suffer complications you know it, it's just there's a lot of sympathy for the um the suffering that these patients um, endure and the cause of it uh there are several factors um uh, age um weight uh, they've had if the childbirth, if they've had multiple childbirths, that weakens the the support uh, supporting uh, ligaments and and, and uh, musculature in the pelvic region. So, uh, it, it, somebody sitting on the jury can easily say, "Well, you know, that could happen to me, or, or someone I love, someone I care about," and it's through no fault of their own. And so, um, it's uh, it's it's tough. Those are tough cases. Uh, you you defend you're you're a, a defense attorney and we've been talking about your your cases that where you're defending all these companies and corporations. You did mention sometimes you're the plaintiff in a in a corporate a corporate litigation case because my understanding about corporate litigation is you may it's whoever get whoever files suit first is you, it depends on who whether you're going to be the plaintiff or defendant. But I'm. I'm wondering whether you ever were uh, represented the plaintiff in a personal injury case. Have you ever oh, done that kind of work? Oh, heavens, yeah. I did a ton of that kind of work um, back in the uh, 80s and even into the 90s. Um, it was not uncommon when I, when Marvin Arrington and I were practicing together, Marvin did a lot of criminal defense work. And we had a general practice. We didn't have a lot of insurance companies or institutional clients. We, our aim was to try to build some of that. But as black lawyers, we just didn't have that. And so whatever came in the door, basically, uh, I've done everything from domestic relations 
Um, I've handled dog bite cases on the plaintiff's side, slip and falls on the plaintiff's side. I've handled aviation cases on the plaintiff's side. Now that was after I was at Swift, Curry, McGee and Harris. Um, Glover McGee was a plaintiff's aviation lawyer, but he did defense work um, in other realms of civil litigation. And after the value jet crash, um, several of the families attempted to contact Glover. Ironically, Glover was in St. Louis buying another airplane. And so I was, had been engaged by Neil Pope, who represented some of the plaintiffs. And so I had some familiarity with the litigation. And so I was in the office, this was like the day before Christmas Eve. And so I got the call and I was able to talk you know, intelligently about the value jet litigation and we got hired. And so uh, I handled those cases and um, a ton of those cases on the plaintiff side and got them, got them, got them resolved. Um, so yeah, that was, that was uh, some significant plaintiff uh, wrongful death. I, I, I've also I've also heard that uh, that a defense lawyer with a plaintiff's case is like teenage boys with a bottle of whiskey, you know, <laughs> they just sap it up every bit of it, and uh, the the, the well, judgment goes out the window when it's there. Well, you know, uh, yes and no, because I had done enough when I was a young lawyer. That's how I cut my teeth on personal injury. Um, that I. I knew not to get overexcited about it. I imagine if you got a defense lawyer who didn't have that background and hadn't as a had not as a young lawyer sat in somebody's living room um, talking to them while they're trying to nurse a baby and uh, keep track of a toddler and explain why you are the person that they ought to hire to represent them. Uh, then they might look at things a little differently or a lot differently. But when you've been in that situation and it's on you in terms of whether this family gets some compensation or not, and you don't have a lot of backup, you've got a small office, uh, you've got help to pay, um, and you've got to do what's in the best interest of this client, which might mean you got to go out and you got to borrow some money and sign a note in order to cover your overhead until the case resolves. So I've got a different perspective um, on representing plaintiffs than maybe some defense lawyers have. So it wasn't as intoxicating for me because I knew <laughs> this is a case we, we could have lost these cases. Yeah. Um, it wasn't a slam dunk. And so because we had to go out and we had to hire the right experts, uh, we had to develop the evidence. And I learned a lot just working with Neil yeah. Uh, because Neil doesn't take very many cases and, you know, he divides the work up amongst his partners where you're going to handle discovery, you're handling experts, you're handling damages, Ray and I are going to handle the courtroom work. And so that's, you know, um, that's how we approached it. But, you know, he'd be the first one to tell you there's not a case that can't be won. There's not one that can't be lost either. So that wasn't lost on us. And, you know, even if you prevail at trial, who's to say that you're going to win on appeal? I mean, and long, so you have to long take all road. that into account. But, you know, Ray, I think that's why you have empathy as a defense attorney, because you have sat in a family's uh, living room or kitchen while they made dinner. You know, you have done that. And all plaintiff's attorneys have done that. 
Um, you know, I can remember one of my clients in her living, tiny living room and the whole living room's taken up by a hospital bed they have to rent that she sleeps in now. She can't even get into her bedroom. Um, but I, I feel like, I mean, not every defense attorney has done what you've done. They don't have that kind of varied career uh, and experience. So I do believe that that experience of representing the little guy um, gives you more empathy and more insight as a defense lawyer into what's going on on the, on the other side. I think it's very helpful. It is, Robin, and it's helpful to, to my clients because I can give them the benefit of that kind of perspective when right. we're talking about evaluating a case for settlement that I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Absolutely. And I'm not one of these uh, people that's on a mission from God, if you will. And I'm not being sacrilegious in saying that, but it's as though some people just, uh, it's, uh, they can't see um, the other side of the coin. They can't yeah. put themselves in the opposing counsel's shoes, if you will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I never let it become about me and the other lawyer. It's about the case. And, uh, and striving to just get to a just result. And if I, if a case, if one of my cases doesn't settle, it's not for a lack of trying. Yeah, very good lesson. Very good way to approach it, I think. Um, let me uh, talk to you a little bit about uh, your work with International Society of Barristers. We were talking about that we had, all three of us were just recently in Maui and that was uh, our annual conference of International Society of Barristers, um, but, you are the president, and well, I, 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 I assume you got to pick Maui as your place did, for your I year. Did. Um, well, well, first of all, first Ray is just an incredible, incredible conference. Every speaker was fantastic. Um, of course, Maui's gorgeous, but uh, the conference itself was just amazing. So, congratulations on an incredible, right. incredible well, week out there. But thank you. Tell us how you first got involved in International okay. Society of Barristers, what what it is. Some people are, sure. are not familiar Absolutely. with it. Absolutely. You need you need to defend, you know, you, you you need to defend a group that would let all three of us in. There's a stiff order for you now. Well, no, it, 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 it what I love so much about the barristers, unlike other law and our societies. The barristers came into uh, existence because some, one of the, and I won't call names, honor societies was so heavily weighted toward big firm lawyers. Another one was focused almost exclusively on the plaintiff side. And so they wanted an organization that would be representative of cross-section of the bar, both plaintiff and defense. And where it would not be a matter of pinning medals on generals. If you get inducted in as an older lawyer, somebody over 60, you have to demonstrate you're still trying cases. And it celebrates the accomplishments of trial lawyers, plaintiff and defense, but it, it, in a way that gives them some respite. Here's an opportunity to get together for fellowship with our families. It's very family oriented, as you know, and not talk about our cases. That's one of the last things we want to hear about your big wins or what you lost, but to just have fellowship and enjoy each other's company, have some lectures on topics that from people you otherwise might not hear from. Somebody coming in and talking about astronomy. Mm -hmm. um, another person is, is coming in and talking about um, uh, the movies. I mean, it's just, it, it's enriching. Uh, 
history professor from Harvard. And so um, it's been, it is the organization that, and Aboda, don't overlook that, that I've enjoyed the most. Um, I got involved in uh, the International Society. Uh, the state chair was Tommy Malone. Uh, Hugh McNatt was in it. So Hugh calls me one day and he says, um, I ain't supposed to tell you this, but I'm, I, I talked to Tommy. We putting you up for uh, <laughs> barracks. I want you to be in everything I'm in. That's, that's typical, McNatt. Anybody who's listened to this knows. I, I love your impersonation. Would I uh, spent so much time around. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I got inducted in Carlsbad in um, February or early March of 2000. And I've been involved ever since. And I'd gone to Hawaii with um, ISOB in the past and uh, meetings in other locales. But um, uh, I got on the Board of Governors. Again, this was a recommendation that Tommy made to one of the past presidents. And the past presidents comprised the nominating committee. And so um, I, I was on the board had all these meetings to go to, and I was hoping that once my tenure was up that, you know, okay, I can get back to practicing and that sort of, just go to the annual meeting and I'd have all these board meetings and, and the work in between. And the nominating committee came back and they, I was on the list of officers, secretary, treasurer. So that just, you go up the progression. Uh, unfortunately, we had not met in person since 2019 when we met this year in Maui. And I was at one of our, our meetings over in South Carolina, I think it was in Pine Bluff. And uh, a couple of the spouses of past presidents says, you know, we have not been to uh, Hawaii in a while. This conversation is taking place in 2019. They knew that I was gonna be president in 2022. So it was far out enough we could plan and budget for a a big trip like that. And um, so I talked to my wife about it and we decided we were gonna do Maui. And um, it just turned out that, you know, there was all this pent up demand to travel and to be together because we hadn't spent any time together in three years. And so it, um, like you say, we had a great setting. We had a great program chair. Um, Lar largest attendance we've had, I think maybe it, ever. I think that's right. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it was a huge success uh, by any measure. And, um, and, you know, I just love the people in this organization. Um, they're like the two of you. I mean, they are people you enjoy being around. And that's part of the criteria for selection. I'll never forget this, this woman who spoke to us in Maui who had suffered the loss of her arm and both legs in a car train collision. She's a radiologist, retired now, and, um, but never gave up on life. Subsequently became a mother, um, a successful radiologist, and, um, and inspired others to go on and achieve. In fact, the, her physical therapist um, left physical therapy as a profession, went to law school, got a master's, and now is now dean of students at the University of, South, of Southern California. Uh, she said to us in her closing remarks after she'd given her talk, 
She said, I don't know what the criteria are for selection for this organization, the International Society of Barristers, but whatever it is, you're doing something extraordinary because I have never encountered a more caring, kind, compassionate group of individuals in all my days. And, and for me, that was the ultimate in terms of a commendation um, or, or praise of the organization and the quality of the people that we have in it. We enjoy each other's company. We care about each other. Um, it's a small organization. I remember when I got in, Bill Lanham, who's a member, who's also a member of the American College and some other organizations said, you know, that's my favorite one because it's small enough you get to really know the people. And, um, and it's my favorite one. Uh, for that reason, it's the, the same, caliber of the people. Hmm? Same thing you said about uh, one of our one of our speakers uh, one night while I was there took the house car. You know that one of the bellmen yeah. drove up and came back and uh, he 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 asked, you know, what are you hearing? He says, you know, we don't have a lot of groups here, but you have a great group, and said much of the same thing and uh you know that's that's kind of stuff you kind of expect to hear from the hotel manager right but when not, the bellhop uh, volunteers right. it for you, you know they're speaking from the heart that's right that's right lester you 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 hit the nail on the head when you've got people at that level of the organization um praising you that's that's high praise that's real high praise that says it all you're doing something right and it says so much about the caliber of people who are in our organization. Um, not only are they great trial lawyers, that's undisputed, but they're just quality people. One of the hallmarks of International Society of Barristers is collegiality. Yes. Uh, and, and we've certainly heard it demonstrated here today with how you approach your cases and dealing with opposing counsel. But Ray, why, why do you think it's so important to have collegiality between plaintiffs and defense counsel? Oh God, you know, you, I think it's in the best interest of the, the clients, the respective clients. I think it's in the best interest of the profession. It helps the judges in terms of just being more efficient, making their jobs easier. Um, they're not expending resources uh, unnecessarily, uh, resolving petty disputes. Um, things that we ought to be able to work out. And, you know, for me, from a selfish standpoint, it just makes our work so much more fun. I can remember how much um, just enjoyment I derived from being able to work things out, get agreements on things. And the ultimate compliment for me um, was for someone to say, you don't have to put it in writing. Man, that it just doesn't get any better than that. How, how could it be any better than that as a professional? You don't have to put it in writing. Uh, for someone to say that about me or for a judge to say, well, if Ray tells me something, I can trust it. Um, that, it just doesn't get any better than that. And, and all of that's part of collegiality um, because when you practice collegiality, it's contagious and, and the judges pick up on it jurors pick up on it, that you're not engaged in the petty fighting. Um, you can, it, it, and so much energy is expended 
when you're fighting over little things and you're not collegial, you're not civil with each other. Um, just, just so much energy that could be devoted to the matter at hand, the end result, getting justice, getting fairness, um, getting a, a good result uh, for the parties. Uh, that gets lost um, and gets sacrificed, in my opinion, um, when you have a lack of collegiality. But for me, from a personal standpoint, it just makes practicing law so immensely enjoyable when we get along. Yeah, total, totally agree. And, and it's hard to explain to my lay clients sometimes. You, you represent corporate clients, but to my lay folks, it's hard to, for them to understand sometimes, but I tell them the fact that I get along with my opposing counsel, which, which I try to make a hallmark of my practice, mm -hmm. um, inures to their benefit. Trust me, if I get along with opposing counsel, it's going to help my client. That's right. They may not see that, but it ultimately, I, I do believe that. It certainly does. And, you know, one thing that um, will help lay people better understand it is if, if we're communicating and we're communicating effectively, then you, you're going to be the beneficiary of it. We're not fighting. I'm not spending unnecessary time fighting with somebody, I'm spending that time focused on what really is important on right. your case. I'm not right. chasing wild rabbits, which is at the expense of distraction from your case. I can focus on your case and just being civil. I mean, it's just being polite um, and not taking things personally. Um, and, yeah. and jurors pick up on it and judges pick up on it. Very true. Ray, um, I'm wondering what a career you've had. Is there a is there a possible highlight? I mean, if you if you could say there was one thing, one highlight of your career so far, can you name can you name something or or is it just I mean just an incredible well, career it, all it, the whole way? Well, it's it's hard to. Um, I can there are a couple of cases that stand out. Um, for me, and one involved an African American woman who came to me. I was at Swift Curry, and she wanted. She had a small newspaper. She wanted to be the legal organ for DeKalb County. The demographics in the county had changed such that there was an African American sheriff and clerk of court, but not probate court. And all three of those had to decide on who would be the legal organ. The incumbent legal organ was a paper that was owned by the head of the Georgia Newspaper Association. So had wielded a lot of influence down at the legislature and in fact changed the law while we were trying to qualify, uh, meet the circulation requirements. We met them, we had, uh, but the probate judge sat on his hands. So I had to file a mandamus action against him. We tried the case, we won. We, they, they appealed, we went to the Georgia Supreme Court, we won, and it changed that woman's life uh, because the, 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 the revenue from being the legal organ and enabled her to increase her circulation 20-fold. Uh, it enabled her to do things for her church and, and other community organizations that she otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. Um, and it just changed, it, it, it changed her whole life. And it began with a visit to my office and our taking on the establishment, taking on the governor, 
taking on the, uh, the newspaper organizations, the media, and, um, and in the courthouse. And a judge. That's where we got justice and a probate judge, but we got justice at the courthouse. The other case I would cite was a milestone for me was representing a, an investment bank from Kuwait. And they were sued by some founders of the Carlisle Group, and the case was tried in the Superior Court of um, D.C. And you had a jury that was uh, from modest means, uh, varied backgrounds, but no professionals. Um, and it was a very complex transaction involving some big real estate. So anyway, they were sued for $500 million. We had a counterclaim for attorney's fees. Uh, they had a venue provision in the contract. They wanted it in DC Superior Court because they figured these people coming in from Kuwait would not play well to a jury there. And so we tried the case. The case took three and a half weeks to try. We got a defense verdict and uh, we won every penny on the counterclaim. And you can imagine how these folks felt about our system. Mm -hmm. They went back to Kuwait having received justice in an American court. Um, I mean, it was just, it, 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 I can't begin to tell you what a um, sense of accomplishment and satisfaction that was for me personally, that our system worked mm -hmm. for folks who, uh, you know, were, were skeptical uh, of, of what kind of justice they were going to receive in an American court, but they got justice against some very powerful people, very powerful people. Great, great stories, great experiences. Um, great I can just go on and on and on and on. I know. You know it's, I could uh, too. Could you, could you share some advice to a young lawyer? Yes. I what, think what would your advice be to a young lawyer just starting out? Give some to old ones like like me. <laughs> Y'all don't, yeah. don't need it. You know all this stuff, but um, take care of the matter at hand. The best source of new clients are the clients you got now and other lawyers. And there are no shortcuts to success in our profession. It requires a tremendous sacrifice, especially personal sacrifice. Sacrifice. Uh, personal relationships, uh, in some instances, family relationships. It is a very demanding profession. It is not for the weak of heart. So unless you can give it 150%, you probably ought to be doing something else because you're going to end up putting those clients before yourself. And that means you're going to put them before some of your family obligations at times. The profession requires it. The client's cases require it. Nothing less than your very, very, very best. And unless you're prepared to make that kind of commitment, that kind of sacrifice, go do something else. But stay away from the courthouse. <laughs> that would be my advice. But that's what you got to do. You, there are no shortcuts. Uh, not without shortchanging your client or shortchanging the judicial system. You just can't do it. Yeah, I, I hear these folks all the time, you know, complaining about practice of law. And so, some of that too is people who go into big law and maybe it doesn't, doesn't fit them uh, or, or, or they go into, you know, 
hanging a shingle like I did and they don't, they don't make enough money or whatever else. But, uh, I, I, I get sort of tired of people, uh, uh, talking about how it's an awful profession because it didn't fit them. And uh, I think one of the things that, that you acknowledge in what you just said is it ain't for everybody, no. you know, it, it's, it, it ain't for everybody. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's something uh, 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 intricately interwoven into the profession that makes it bad. Somehow. Oh, heavens no. And I tell you what, as a trial lawyer, I could not think of a more rewarding profession. Um, you get to work on some of the most fascinating um, cases. You get to learn interesting topics, a broad range of topics. It's like a Renaissance career. You get to meet some of the most interesting people. You get to help people. Um, and, and you get to give back to your community. Um, you're an intricate part of a branch of government. I mean, it, it just it can't it just doesn't get any better than this. Not from my standpoint. Sacrifice, yes, but oh, the rewards. And I'm talking about the non-material rewards because you can't do it for money alone. The money will come, but that's just a byproduct of this kind of dedication and commitment. If you've got this kind of dedication and commitment, those kinds of tangible rewards will come. But oh Lord, the intangible. That's what makes it worthwhile. That's what gets me out of bed every day. It's certainly not the money. Um, it's the intangibles. Yeah. It's the chance to work with young lawyers, working on interesting uh, subjects and learning just fascinating things. Yeah, you, definitely, you definitely have to be a lifelong learner. That you, that's that's right. something you want to do. Because like you say, you, you have to become an expert on so many different subject matters. That's right. <laughs> you know... I, I, I learned so much in every case right now. I've got cable barriers uh, that go between medians on my mind, but I'm learning a lot about cable barriers That's right. in a car wreck <laughs> exactly. case. Exactly, yeah. Uh, roadway design. Yeah, roadway Stuff design. Like I yeah. never thought I'd do so, know so much about it, but um, it is a great, it's just a great, I think it's a great career and, and great calling. I, I think you see it as a calling. I do. I, I see it as a calling, and I know I Lester do. does too. I do, Robin. That, yeah, that, you, you hit, yeah that, that's precisely how I see it. It's a call yeah. for me. It's not a job. It's not a profession as much as it's a calling. I, I always point out that in, in most other common law countries, uh, if, and if you go look at websites of lawyers in other countries, instead of having the year they were admitted to the bar, like you got a ticket and you go into Six Flags and they'll open the gate for you, it says the year of call. It was the year you were called uh, to be a member of the bar. And I, I've always loved that idiom and I wish it were more, uh, uh, I, I wish we'd steal it here in America. Me too. I like that. Yeah. Ray, what, um, two, two more things. First, before we get to the last question, I, I was wondering if, um, if there is a, uh, a personal motto or personal tenant that you follow that directs your life and your practice as a lawyer, um, you, you obviously have just such an incredible reputation, not only here in our state of Georgia, but, but the entire country. Is there, so, is there some either a, something of faith or, or just your, your saying or your mantra or motto that you say to yourself about the kind of person you're going to be or how you're going to treat people? Or is there something oh, yeah. like that in your life? Yeah. The biggest influence in my life uh, was my mother and 
Um, she, she told us that nothing was impossible um, with God. Um, you can achieve it. And that was the driving force for me to become a lawyer. I worked my way through college in Savannah at Armstrong and was fortunate enough to get a scholarship uh, with the, through the Cleveland Bar Association to go to law school. But she was uh, really the spark. And, and I guess in terms of how I lead my life day to day, and it, it would be this, that um, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Give them the same respect um, that you would want from them and, and treat them the way you'd want to be treated. And I think if you, if you do that, that's, those are, uh, that's a good thing to live by. I totally agree. The golden rule, uh, yeah. good way to practice law. Ray, uh, we have one last question. I, I've tried to prepare you for it, so you'd be thinking a little bit about it, but we ask every guest at the uh, conclusion, and, and this has just been a wonderful discussion. We can't thank you enough. Sure. Um, how do you define justice? What is, what is your notion of it? Well, and, and a word would be fairness. Fairness. And I know that's equally as vague as justice, but just equality, equitable, I don't know that I can put it any other way, but that, but for me, it's fairness, and the fair result might not always be what you think it is or ought to be, and in, in, in the jury system, uh, it's you know what the jury comes back with. I oftentimes disagree with it, but then that's that's our system, and so as I tell them in closing art, I accept it. I accept their decision, and for me, that's that's justice in a jury trial. Uh, more broadly, it's fairness, trying to get to a fair result. We're trying to mediate a case. We're trying to settle a case, trying to get to a fair result. What's fair to both sides? And that's, that's, that can be very, very difficult, especially right. when you're not making the final decision. Well, Ray, it's just been a delight talking with you. Let me remind my uh, our listeners that we've been talking with Ray Persons, trial lawyer and partner at King & Spalding. And you can read more about Ray and his law firm at kingandspalding.com. Ray, thank you again. It's been a delight. Thank you, Lester. Thank you, Robin. It's been terrific. I've enjoyed it uh, immensely. And um, thank you for your friendship and um, here. being such stalwarts of the bar and, and leading exemplary um, lives that so many young lawyers um, can emulate. I'm proud to call you friends and, and counsel. Proud to call you friend too, Ray. Totally mutual feeling. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. All right, Lester, uh, great talk with Ray Persons. I'm wondering if you brought uh, something to share with our listeners, that little little legal news related item that we can share with our listeners. I did, hot off the presses. You know, we, we often have these things on here and we say, two weeks ago in the yeah. New York Times, blah, blah, blah. Well, it, according to my, uh, uh, according to my, uh, uh, iPad here where I pulled it up. This was posted six hours ago. Oh, wow. Uh, it's been going on for a long time, though. And it's an article in the Atlanta Journal Constitution by my friend Mark Nisi, which 
uh, is entitled Georgia Voting Rights Trial to Begin After Years of Heated Elections. Uh, and the lead reads, one of the most prominent voting rights cases in years is going to trial Monday, testing allegations that Georgia's election policies illegally obstructed voters uh, from casting their ballots. The long-awaited trial will highlight complaints about voting problems in the 2018 and 2020 elections, bringing a parade of voters and elected officials uh, into federal court to testify under oath about their experiences. And I think the significance of this is uh, we frequently heard after the 2020 election uh, from uh, our former president that the uh, uh, election was, uh, was a fraud and there were a lot of claims that were rejected by the court uh, by the courts, uh, some of which resulted even in discipline against some of the lawyers. Uh, this particular case uh, began three and a half years ago when it was filed by Fair, Fair Fight Action, a group Democrat Stacey Abrams founded following her loss to Republican Brian Kemp in the 2018 election for governor. Now it will be decided by a judge as both candidates are running again. And I think it's important, I think this is an important story uh, and, it, and it goes on, by the way, if you read it, it will go on to, to tell you what some of the issues are about uh, how they reject absentee ballots and, you know, things like this. But I think one of the most important things to know about that is uh, Democrat, Republican, true, false, whatever, uh, you have people that make claims about our voting system. And there is a way to actually get to the facts of those voting of those claims and find out whether they're true or not. And I think too many times folks say, well, who's making that claim? Is that somebody that I like? Is that a politician that I like? Or is that a politician that I dislike? Is it gonna help somebody that I'd like to see get elected? Yeah. Uh, or is it gonna hurt somebody that I'd like to see get elected? And that's not really the purpose of the courts. Uh, you know, uh, as yeah, it's not uh, outcome determinative, right? Exactly. And so here you have, you know, complaints about the voting system. And by the way, too, Judge Steve Jones, who has this, the story outlines a lot of the claims that were made by Fair Fight Action were thrown out. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are others that were worthy of going forward. And, you know, in a society that believes in the rule of law, uh, believes in the rule of law, we have to evaluate claims on the facts. And when the facts aren't there, when the facts are just made up, you're going to get thrown out of court. Uh, and sometimes you're going to have claims that you think are good, but aren't as good as you thought, don't meet the legal requirements. Those may get thrown out. And then there are others that, you know, you put folks to their proof on and, and find out if, if there's actually some, uh, some meat on the bones of their claim there. Exactly what Ray was talking about with all of his trials. Um, I, I regret it's in federal court because you, we're not going to be able to watch it on online, right. you know, no, right. no TV coverage in federal court. I would love to watch that. Right. Um, it'll be some juicy, juicy stuff coming out of there, I'm sure. And it's supposed to be, you know, I, I have a, another case with some lawyers who are going to be involved in this. And uh, uh, we were trying to set a little bench trial that we're going to have to have uh for one of them's gonna have to come away from that and they said it was gonna last four or five weeks you know, oh my so. gosh uh but you know how bench trials are you know i mean you may do two hours one day and yeah five hours the next or something like that so anyway that's mine okay. for today we'll be looking at looking at that mine is uh out of kentucky my my home commonwealth um uh, 
and the, the headline is lawyers could carry guns in court if Kentucky governor signs bill. So this, they just, I think their legislature session just ended as, as Georgia's did. Um, but Kentucky lawmakers have pr approved a bill that allows lawyers to carry guns in court. And it provides that any lawyer licensed to practice law in Kentucky may, may carry a concealed weapon at all locations if the attorney holds a license to carry a concealed weapon. So you, as long as you have a license, you can carry it in court um, in a trial or, or just, just like a judge. And the, and the, the state senator, Johnny Turner, a Republican from Harlan, Kentucky, added the amendment. Um, and his, his thought was that a lawyer should be able to protect themselves in court, just like a judge or a bailiff. Um, now, I will see. The, I don't think the governor signed it yet. Governor Bashir, Andy Bashir, is the governor, and uh, all he, all his uh, office said is they would review the measure. It's House Bill 690 uh, when it reaches his desk. So, so no promise to sign or not sign. But it occurred to me. I, I was thinking of that scenario. Um, of course, in Georgia, even if you have a concealed carry permit, you may not. Listen, folks, you may not carry a gun into court. You don't get to do that. A judge does, uh, sheriff deputy does, but not a lawyer. And going back to my first and last murder trial, uh, that would be a murder trial would be the last place I would want to have a gun because I'd be concerned that the defendant might be able to get a get a hold of it. Yeah, I, I, you know, and, and I don't know if you know this, Robin, but in Cobb County, if you're a member of the Cobb County Bar, you get a card that you can, you know, go in and bypass yeah. security. But yeah. Cobb County has gun-free courthouses, except if you, doesn't matter if you're who you are, if you're not a Cobb County Sheriff's deputy that's charged with keeping order, you can't take a gun into the courthouse. So if you're a Marietta City policeman and you go over there, they've got a locker out front and you put your gun in there and you lock the thing and you take the key. And then when you get through, you come back and get it. Uh, I, I have a concealed carry permit. We've had lawyers in Cartersville that have been shot before. And yeah. uh, I, yeah. I, I, I believe it is one avenue available to uh, protect me and my staff. Uh, although like you, I don't want one in court. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't, I'm busy trying the case, not, not, you know, checking my briefcase or patting my hip, you know, when I'm in there. But if you're a lawyer and a member of the Cobb County Bar and you carry a gun, you know, in your briefcase, whatever you go into the courthouse, you can use the same thing that the police officers use. And I've done that. I've done that before. Just uh, put it in a locker, but you're not taking it up to the courtroom. Oh, no, it's outside. It's outside yeah. the courthouse. It's you know, the thing outside. I worry about is what if something you're, you're in the middle of a trial and you've got a gun on you, something goes wrong or somebody just loses his you know what and takes it out on you and tries to grab your gun. Uh, I just I just think it's a bad idea to have lawyers have a lot guns of judges won't let witnesses testify if they're armed, you know, like police officers. And I I, I, I sort of agree with that. I, I, mean, I do, know, too. I think it's uh, uh, I, th I think it makes sense. I mean, a, a courthouse is, is is where you fight a war of, of words and not a gun battle. That's exactly right. Well, we'll be seeing if Governor Bashir signs that but I, I i'm pulling for him that he doesn't we'll see well lester that's it it is absolutely uh but it's been a great 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 uh, show today yeah so, great uh, show with ray persons and uh 
And then we have another episode coming up soon. So Lester, until next time, we'll see, we'll you, see in you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.